Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of uh, my podcast. I'd like to call it something, but I honestly don't know what I'd call it. It's sort of a myriad of of, uh, stories, and uh, anyway, I've tried many times to to write um, about my life. Not that my life is that exciting, but um, something for my kids. Maybe when I'm gone, and you know, maybe my grandkids one day pick it up and read it a little bit, learn about their grandfather. Um, I've been very blessed. I've been very, um, very lucky to live the life that I've lived. It, it wasn't always that way, though. I'm, I was born the youngest of five boys to uh, my mother Mary and my father Joseph, and uh, I tease my family sometimes. I said, you know, I was born December to Mary and Joseph I should have been called Jesus but uh, my mom and dad were my mom came from a a sort of a working class blue collar family her dad was uh, an engineer with the Navy he was uh, he had grown up himself little place called Union County, Florida, and uh, back in the turn of the century, and um, when he was a little boy, his dad was the grist mill grinder, and uh, people would bring their corn to him, and he'd grind their corn up, and I guess for either a fee or a portion of their corn, he'd do it, and uh, <clears throat> he was also considered the, the local, <coughs> pardon me, the local physician, uh, a bit of a surgeon, uh, trained himself. Uh, my grandfather's father was very, uh, very compassionate uh, about people, and so oftentimes people would get in trouble. Something would happen on the farm, and my my grandfather's grandfather would rush to his aid and, and uh, you know render care. My uh, my grandfather tells me a story when he was a little boy. He said he had gone to bed. He was sleeping that night. And his, his daddy came in and woke him up and said, "Hitch up the wagon, boy. We gotta we gotta go someplace." So my grandfather gets up out of bed, as he's told, and he goes and he hood, hitches up the wagon and the horse and gets it ready. And his father comes out and they hop in the wagon and off they go in the middle of the night. And uh, <clears throat> all they had to show the way was a lantern that they'd had, an old, uh, old-fashioned old lantern and uh, oil lamp, I guess. And <clears throat> they made their way through the woods and down the road into another section of their little county. They came up on an old, beat-up, clapboard, turn-of-the-century uh, home more of a, uh, I guess, a poor man's home. It was uh, part of the uh, what do you, sharecroppers, and uh, wasn't much to look at, and uh, had a porch on the front, open, <clears throat> and a washing machine out there with a uh, clothesline hanging up, and stacks of wood next to that for the uh, wood stove, and my grandfather got there, and just as he got there, the Ku Klux Klan had showed up, 
and they were all in their regal and their white outfits and their pointed hats. And my grandfather knew from experience that he would just sit in the wagon and wait for his grandpa or his dad. <clears throat> and he said that uh, his dad told him, sit in the wagon, boy, until this is done. So my grandfather sat there in the wagon and the clan members went in this house and they drug out a man, a white man, who was drunk. He'd been beating his wife and beating his children and he refused to go to work and his kids were starving to death and so was his wife. And any money he did come upon, he'd use it on liquor and stay drunk all the time. They pulled him out of the house. Of course, he was protesting and yelling and screaming and they strapped him to a a large sweet gum tree that was growing right out in front of the house. They tied his hands together and he's yelling and screaming and I guess at this point probably begging for them not to inflict any kind of pain upon him. And one of the clansmen pulled from his horse uh, a whip and uh, he told the man, he said, you're going to go get a job tomorrow and you're going to feed this family and you're going to take care of them. And if you ever lay another hand on this family, we're going to come back and we're going to hang you from this very tree. <clears throat> and so <laughs> they whooped him with a, a whip. And uh, <clears throat> they, uh, as soon as they were done, I don't know how many lashes the man got, but it was enough to get his attention. As soon as they were done, man collapsed I guess and my granddaddy was just a little boy and his daddy called him and said come on son let's go and they went over and my great-grandfather stitched him up and took care of him and my grandfather rendered a little aid to him and my grandfather said you know one thing for sure that man never put another hand on his wife or his kid he did actually get a job <clears throat> and uh I know the Ku Klux Klan has a bad reputation and they've done a lot of horrible things and I'm not justifying what they did at all, but in the, in, in the event that someone in the community was mistreating their children or their wife and the Klan got a hold of that information, they would bring them to justice, which again doesn't justify why Plan did the things that they did to to people that didn't deserve it. But uh, my grandfather was was uh, changed by that event. Uh, obviously, he was just a kid, and so he never forgot that. But he came from a background of you know working farmers. You know they didn't they didn't have anything back then, and whatever they had, they worked really hard for, and. Uh, I remember a story he told me about the Depression, when the Depression was on and people were standing in line for bread just to eat. My granddaddy and his brother would walk about, I don't know, 10 miles a day into town and they would stand around and wait to be called to go to work to do something so they could earn a little bit of money. Back then he said they didn't really pay in cash or gold or silver but they would give you flour, sugar, and butter. And um, so they worked for commodities, you know. And um, it's, some days he said he would walk all the way to town 
and he'd get there and him and his brother would turn around and come back and they didn't need any help that day. And he said, so it wasn't always a guarantee that you'd get a job or find somebody that'd hire you on. And then uh, Roosevelt, <clears throat> Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president at the time, tried to combat the, uh, the uh, recession that was go actually depression that was going on. And uh, so he authorized monies for what he called CC camps. Um, these CC camps would employ young men like my grandfather and his brother, and uh, they would help build roads and, and uh, federal buildings and things like that. And, and uh, it was a large build in the South where courthouses were uh, being constructed through a, a, a work program. And um, WPA, I believe they called them. And uh, it put a lot of these young guys to work who couldn't, you know, couldn't do anything else. It just the economy was so bad there wasn't a whole lot to offer these these young kids. And so, of course, one thing led to another, and <clears throat> you know the um, the Nazis in Germany took over, and and uh, there was a looming war coming, and everybody sort of sensed it. And so, by the time World War II came around and we got involved. Uh, my grandfather was disqualified from joining the Navy uh, because of his teeth. And uh, back then they, they, they used all sorts of reasons to disqualify people because they, they didn't really want to take people in who, who they had to do medical work on. And it was just cost prohibitive. And so my grandfather, the next best thing he could do was join the Navy Department. And so that's what he did. He joined the Navy Department. He didn't have a, uh, a formal degree but he learned how to be an engineer when it came to ball bearings. And uh, ball bearings fit into the wheels of the airplanes. And um, my grandfather actually uh, has a patent for a ball bearing that is still used in naval airplanes today. And uh, I'm not sure what it's called, but he, um, he worked at the Naval Air Station, golly, 35 years. And uh, back in the Carter days, Jimmy Carter was our president. I was just a little boy. Um, my grandmother and my grandfather, they lived in uh, Springfield, Jacksonville. And uh, of course now Springfield's a drug haven. Uh, you don't go in there unless you, you got the SWAT team with you. Um, but my granddaddy and my grandmama lived in this little house that they actually built over in Springfield. And uh, he went to work for NAS Jacks, Naval Air Station Jacks, for 35 years. And he talks about the Jimmy Carter came into the White House with a lot of social ideas that were just not not really good ideas. They were just a knee-jerk reaction. And so there was the. Uh, Oh, what they call that, the anti-discrimination laws that came out. And yes, there were some discriminating going on against people of color, and women, and you know, uh, it was a lot of things that should have been changed, and I'm glad they're changed for today, but back then, my granddaddy had grown up in a world where, uh, you know, 
white people were, I don't know, I don't want to say they ruled, but they did. And the blacks were in their own little communities and, and they worked in, you know, the fields and things like that. And it's not that I'm saying that black people should work in the fields and they should be mistreated. I, I think that's, that's terrible. I don't believe in slavery. I never will. I think it's horrible the way that the uh, Africans were brought over here and mistreated by, you know, ancestors of, of ours. And there's nothing we can do to make that up. But my granddaddy had been brought up in an era where black people were considered less than human. Now that's wrong, I know it's wrong, but that was the mindset of my granddaddy. And so when he worked at NAS Jacks as an engineer, um, a new law came into effect where they were hiring uh, minorities to work in, the, in, in all aspects of federal government and uh, that touched my grandfather's. Uh, job and he worked in the engineering department at NAS Jacks and uh, <clears throat> they brought in someone to they, they didn't have any uh, minorities in the office except for the janitor and uh, my granddaddy said that he wasn't very smart and he didn't really talk a lot and um, he he was probably marginalized by the system. Um, at any rate, he wasn't very intelligent. And so the, these representatives from Washington, D.C. came down to NAS Jacks and they interviewed this black man and they told him that he was now gonna be an engineer. And my grandfather said he has no experience and he has no degree and he has no formal training. And my grandfather was the was the head of the department at the time. And um, they brought this black man in and they, they, my grandfather said, well, if he passes the test, then, you know, we'll, we'll hire him and he'll become an engineer. And so they said, okay. So they gave him the test. And of course, the poor black man was, was ignorant. He didn't know anything. And bless his heart, he, he failed the test uh, big time. And, um, my grandfather took the test to one of the uh, D.C. representatives and said, uh, he's failed this test miserably. He didn't get anything right but his name. And the man said, re-evaluate re that test. And my granddaddy said, what? He said, regrade that test. And my granddaddy said, the test is the test. It is what it is. And the man said, well, I'm not leaving your office until you regrade that to where that man passes. And my granddaddy said, then we're going to be here a long time. And so my granddaddy said he sat in there for hours. He did other things while the man just sat across from his desk. He had his legs crossed and his suit on, and he smiled at my grandfather, knowing that in the end, my grandfather would see it his way, and the man would be promoted to an engineer, though he could barely understand engineering or mathematics. And so my grandfather says that after several hours, he became frustrated and he asked the man one more time, you know, are you going to make me do this? And the man said, I'm not going to make you do anything, but you're not leaving this office until he's passed that exam. And so my grandfather said, fine, he passed and he put a passing grade at the top. And he handed it back to the man from D.C. and he said, 
he said, now sign your name, Mr. Deco. That was my grandfather's name. And so he signed his name reluctantly. And my grandfather was so exasperated by the system at that point. And this man would come into work every day. This, this black gentleman would come into work every day, bless his heart. He would sit at the engineering table and he would just read books and he would fall asleep and he would eat his lunch. And yet he was an engineer, and so it bothered my grandfather quite a bit. And um, so he decided it was time to retire. He had been there 35 years, so it, it was time to retire. And so that's what he did. He put his paperwork in and he retired. And um, he moved out of Jacksonville into a little small community outside of Jacksonville, real country kind of town. And um, he, uh, moved out there and became a, uh, well not became, but he sort of was a uh, rodeo announcer. He loved to be, he liked to be in the limelight, my grandfather did. He was not a feel good, warm, fuzzy kind of person. And I guess a lot of it had to come from, from his upbringing. And so, you'll have to forgive me, my sugar's getting a little low and I have to eat something. But my grandfather was not a super nice guy. He didn't show his emotions. Never told you he loved you. And my personality was I needed affirmation and love. And so I didn't get a whole lot of that from him. So he and I weren't very close. Now his wife, Alma, she was the sweetest thing in the world. She was probably five foot four, short, short, short girl, sweet as she could be. Now she came from a family of ranchers and, uh, in uh, Union County as well. And she was one of 12, I believe, siblings. And... Um, they didn't go hungry because they always had cattle and they always had, you know, uh, a garden or, you know, they traded. So she was a little better off than he was. And so she, she and him got married. I forget how old she was, but she had my mother first. And um, I remember she said, you could go to the, the theater for five cents for a nickel. And so they would go to the theater for a nickel and watch the theater. They're big on the theater. And uh, my grandmother worked at the King Edward Cigar Factory. And uh, this was right over there where she lived. And um, she rolled cigars and put them in boxes all day long. And uh, they had a daycare on the top floor of this building. It was probably five stories tall. And uh, the daycare was where my mother grew up. Because my grandmother couldn't afford to hire someone to keep her. And it was just too much to keep her home. She needed money. She had to work. 
So my grandmother worked in the cigar factory, and she eventually retired. When my grandfather, I think long before my grandfather retired, my grandmother retired, because I remember her being home, and he would get up in the mornings, and he would go to work, and she'd get up and fry him a few eggs and some bacon and make coffee, and they would drink and have breakfast together that morning. I always thought that was really precious, that every morning she'd get up with him, and uh, I'd wander out of my room, and I'd hear them making noise. I was always an early morning riser, and I'd walk out there, and it'd be dark outside, and um, my grandmother would make me a cup of coffee. It was mostly milk with lots of sugar, and I'd sip coffee with him until he had to leave and go, and when he left, Grandma would go back to bed. I called her Mimi. Mimi would go back to bed, and I'd go lay down with her. I was just a little thing, and uh, we'd we'd rest till the sun came up, and usually that day we would get up, have our breakfast. We'd watch a few of her shows that came on. She had a little small black and white TV. We'd watch Star Trek. She loved Star Trek. I guess that's probably why I like Star Trek so much. She was very caring. She was very loving. She was the quintessential grandmother. I don't think she ever laid a hand on me. I don't think she ever hurt me. I don't think she ever said any unkind word to me ever. She was the sweetest thing in the world. And she was old-fashioned, and her and my grandfather went to a Baptist church, and a big Baptist church, Berea Baptist Church, 5000 Main Street. <laughs> and uh, why I remember that is, I can't tell you. But whenever I stayed with her, we always had to go to church. That was just the way it was. Well, my grandmother and grandfather had my mother first. And then I guess, I don't know how many years it was later, but my mother was much older. They had their second daughter, Diane. And uh, Diane was just beautiful. She was absolutely, I mean, stunningly beautiful. And she was elegant, and she, she had a way about her that, you know, she would have fit in in Downton Abbey, you know. She was just that way. And uh, she's very refined, and, and uh, she had a very uh, unique taste. And I always looked up to my Aunt Diane. We called her Aunt Dee. And um, I don't know where that came from. Probably one of my older brothers. Diane and my mother grew up in a household where my grandfather was very dogmatic about everything. It was his way or the highway kind of thing. But he, he ruled with... Um, my mother was terrified of my grandfather. Not that he would hurt her or do anything. She was just terrified that he would be mad with her. Because I remember my mother saying one time, my daddy's mad at me and she just cried and cried and cried and and I thought well what in the world that's crazy but for her to have her father not approve of her was was really devastating and so um, 
she really, really worshipped the ground my grandfather walked on. But, but she also was very rebellious. My mother, my mother, looking back now, my mother probably had, um, oh, what do you call it? Uh, she's probably borderline. Um, she was definitely narcissist. Um, she may have been bipolar. Um, <laughs> she had a lot of mental illness that seemed to get worse uh, when she would, well, it didn't seem to get worse. It was, it was manifested in such a way when she was younger that she had the energy to, you know, ride that horse, so to speak. And so she'd get up on that wild horse and she'd ride it. And um, she'd do crazy things, you know, um, screaming and yelling, slamming cabinets breaking down. She called it a nervous breakdown. <clears throat> she'd, she'd say all the time, I'm having a nervous breakdown. My nerves are shot. She constantly did that. But my mother ran away when she was 15 and married a guy who was in his 20s. His name was R.T. R.T. was uh, not a very nice guy. He was a bad boy. And um, he ended up moving with her to Miami. They lived in Coral Gables back early, early on in the, uh, golly, I guess the mid-50s, and uh, they, uh, they got married, and of course, he was abusive, and uh, it didn't last long, and she came home with, with two kids in tow, Butch and, Butch and Joey. And then um, she met a guy named Ken Weinberg, and uh, hooked up with him, and had my brother, Howard. So she had three kids in tow, two husbands, and she was divorced. And. Uh, her sister, I've married a guy, um, I think his name was J Johnny Todd Nobles. She married him and had, had my cousin Todd. She divorced him, married a guy named, oh, what was his name, Eddie. She married...